I'd like to speak tonight about suffering. When I was in Switzerland about two years ago, someone told me a true story about a fire that occurred in a very large mental hospital about 20 years ago. And it was in the winter, and there weren't as many fire men available as there should have been, or people to help. And so some of the staff got the people that, ha- that were living in the institution out in, in stages. But there weren't enough staff to stay with the people that they had brought out. And some of these people had never left their rooms or had never left the building for over 20 years, over 30 years, some over 40 years. So as you can imagine, it was quite shocking and horrifying for these people to be brought out of the building. And so some of them were so afraid that they went back in and burned to death. They just couldn't stand that much change. They couldn't risk losing that much security. And I like to think of this story as a kind of metaphor for us all. How difficult it is for us to do this practice. How difficult it is for us to face our secure ways of perceiving. To let go of the security of an I, and how we all take turns going back into the fire and coming out many, many times. We often choose what seems more comfortable and secure, and it's a kind of suffering, it's a kind of death. So to put this in the context of the Buddha, in his first sermon, he spoke of the Four Noble Truths as an orientation to the ending of suffering, as a way to come out of the fire fully and not go back. These four truths are like the four points of a compass. And we each have to make our own map. We each have to orient ourselves to these four points of the compass. I cannot kiss the pain in myself away. I cannot kiss the pain in any of you away to try to make it better. We all have to free ourselves to find our own inner happiness and peace away from the fire. So we each have this opportunity to orient ourselves to these Four Noble Truths. And the first Noble Truth is the truth of suffering. The Buddha said that life is inseparably tied to what he called Dukkha. And this is traditionally defined as the inherent unsatisfactoriness of existence revealed in impermanence, pain, 
and perpetual incompleteness. The second noble truth points out the origin of suffering, which is craving. Craving for pleasure, craving for existence, craving for non-existence. The third noble truth is the ending of suffering, forsaking craving. And the fourth noble truth shows the way leading to the ending of suffering or the Eightfold Noble Path. And tonight I'd like to focus on the first noble truth, the truth of suffering. And what the Buddhist is saying is that the first step to finding this deep happiness that is within all of us is that we have to wake up and fully realize the extent of our own suffering. And this means something deeper than pain and misery. It means waking up to the basic unsatisfactoriness running through our lives. And this means waking up because the origin of suffering is within ourselves. Each and every being who takes birth needs to learn to trust leaving the fire. Dukkha is a concept that most people tend to have difficulty with. At the mere mention of the word suffering, usually the defenses go up. A strong desire to prove some sort of stubborn optimism arises, or a subtler attitude of endurance by resisting arises like gritting one's teeth to get through the sitting, or waiting to get through one's day, or waiting to get through the three-month course, or waiting to get through one's life. We so seldom enjoy the peace of contentment And what we're doing in our meditation is an exploration of dukkha. And there are many subtleties to it. Once one can open to the truth of suffering, there can be a real joy and true happiness in that understanding. Dukkha is defined as pain a painful feeling which may be bodily or mental. And the term is not limited to painful experiences. It's further defined as the unsatisfactory nature and general insecurity of all conditioned phenomenon. On account of this insecurity, which is the impermanence, all beings are liable to suffering. And this includes pleasurable experiences. Some people wrongly assume that this denies the existence of pleasurable experience, but it means changeability. The deepest meaning of dukkha is that our existence is marked with insecurity. When the United States astronauts first landed on the moon 
and when they looked back on the earth, what they felt most keenly was the earth's fragility. It's this same kind of fragility or insecurity that all beings in the universe are liable to. And there are three kinds of suffering, traditionally. There is dukkha dukkha. This is suffering as pain. Painful feelings in the body, old age, disease, and death. There is anicca dukkha. This is the quality of uncertainty because we really never know what's going to happen. We have no control over what's appearing in the mind. And this also includes the sorrow of loss that pleasant experiences pass. And the third kind of suffering is called sankhara dukkha, and it's the suffering inherent in formations themselves. And this is this suffering in formations is the fleetingness, the momentariness of formations. Shakespeare said thoughts which ten times faster glide than the sun's beams. Sankara dukkha means that these formations are vanishing even quicker than that. Vanishing. Apatheia is a Greek word that means non-suffering. Apathy is the inability or the refusal to experience pain. And it is the indifference to the truth of our suffering that results in confusion and deeper suffering instead of in a search for understanding. A search with an intention to understand rather than to judge our experience. Very important. We're usually conditioned to view pain as malfunctional as not serving any kind of purpose. To break through this prison cell of apathy, one must be willing to acknowledge and experience painful sensations in this process that we call our life. We need to be willing to feel vulnerable and fragile Several years ago, I saw a film on the life of Martin Luther King, Jr. And in one part, he's reflecting on a march that he led through the streets of Chicago in the heat of the summer. And he said it was the worst violence he had ever experienced, including all the protests he had been involved with in the South. And he responded to a question about the motivation to continue. How did he keep up his motivation to continue through such violent intensity? And he answered, All we're doing is bringing the evil out into the open. And 
And sometimes being on retreat can feel like we're marching through the streets of Chicago. Sometimes it can seem like all we're doing is bringing the evil out into the open. When we come on retreat, we're not changing life in any way. It's no different here than your life outside of retreat. By now, you've probably realized that Vipassana isn't an escape. (laughs) It's quite the contrary. It's very hard. And it's called intensive for a reason. (laughs) It's very intense. And it's like we're shining a spotlight on life. We're illuminating our life, making whatever is there more visible. What's happening in South Africa right now? The pain is becoming more visible. What happens if we close the mental hospitals in the state of Massachusetts? All the hidden problems, all the intense mental suffering of these people become more visible. And what happens when we come on retreat? It's called the path of purification. Mindfulness makes space in the mind for what has been hidden to become more visible. And when the difficult emerges, when each new layer of pain surfaces, we usually think that something's wrong. But it usually means that the process is working. It's a process of waking up to dukkha or suffering. This is the first noble truth, and it's very cleansing. Carl Rogers and Ruth Sanford said after visiting South Africa, this summer. Increasingly, we have the conviction that most major changes are precipitated by a great stress or crisis, that a person, and perhaps a nation, pushed to the brink of disaster can respond by panic and disintegration, by violence against others and themselves, or by openness to the pain and the risk of accepting change. Only through this third alternative can healing and renewal begin. Openness to the pain and the risk of accepting change. It's the very first step. How much of our our experience is really acceptable to us? At first, it can seem like a generous estimate would be about 98% of our life is unacceptable. It's usually if we're honest. (laughs) There's the nothing's happening space, or the boredom space, or the hot dagger in the knee space, or the going crazy space. 
or the falling into walls, space, sleepiness, the fear, space, angry, space, wanting, space, defeated, space, doubting, space. There's the effortless, mindful space, concentrated space, high-energy space. If, if your effort is going into changing what's happening, if the effort is getting rid of what is there, then we give these spaces more and more power over us. If the efforts are to pay attention to just what is there, it's a revolution. Not identifying, not not manipulating is not reinforcing the I. And that's a revolution. I worked in an apartment program quite a few years ago now for mental patients who had been in a mental hospital for over 15 years. A friend of mine had worked on trying to shut down the mental hospitals in the state of Massachusetts. And so I worked with three men trying to help them adjust to even being, just being out of the hospital after being there for so long. And I'd like to share a story about one man in particular. He'd been in the hospital for over 18 years. And he was visited once every Christmas for 15 minutes by his father. That was the only company he ever received. And when he arrived in the apartment, he had one possession... It was a square, wooden, what he called a plaque, which he had made when he first went to the hospital. And I worked in the night shift, so I wasn't so involved with any kind of goals for these people, luckily. (laughs) I had just come out of retreat myself, (laughs) so adjusting to the culture was quite an affair for myself. And one day, I switched shifts, and I worked on the day shift. And I had heard in the staff meetings um, how frustrating these people were, with the staff were with this person, because he spent almost all of his time outside in the parking lot. And this was just a normal apartment complex. And it looked to me like he was doing walking meditation. But he would walk up and down the parking lot all day, except the only difference between me and them and me and him was that he would carry his plaque. And the goal, believe it or not, the goal of the program was to get him to not carry his plaque. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not kidding. (laughs) And the staff were getting really frustrated because he, you know, he wasn't responding. (laughs) And so this day I was sitting on the steps of the apartment and he was walking up and down the parking lot with his plaque and he was walking to the door. And it was one of those rare moments and I just got it. I said, oh, I really like the color of your plaque. And he just, he just burst into tears. 
it was so powerful. He had never worn anything but his institutional clothes. He ran upstairs and he put on a, a blue shirt. The color of the plaque was blue. And so we spent the next hour talking about the color blue, the color of the sky. I can't begin to tell you what that did for our relationship, but also he finally felt accepted. One of those brief fleeting moments. And in the program, instead of being able to accept this person as he was, there was this big goal of trying to get rid of something about him. And it's not possible for us to change unless we feel accepted, unless we feel that openness and trust. And I share this story because it's the same with every single moment of our life. If we accept what's there, if we can open to it, this is love, and this makes the space for the possibility for change, if it's necessary. And it's possible to learn this kind of acceptance with painful sensations in the body and painful mental states. And once you learn how to do it in one area, it usually helps us to learn how to do it in other areas. One of the benefits of being in a situation with any kind of continuity is that one can explore over and over and over again how it is that our mind state colors how we perceive what's happening. The crux of freedom is realizing that it's not what's happening that imprisons us, but our relationship to what is happening that determines our sense of well-being, our contentment or not. And quite a long time ago, I was sitting a three-month course in this hall. And courses used to be smaller then. And I used to try to manipulate the day so that I would sit in the hall when there was no one else in the hall. And so this meant that I used to stay up very late and sit late at night and in the early hours of the morning. And I was having a wonderful time. And then these two people started sitting when I was sitting in the hall. And these two people sat next to each other up in front, and I was, up in, I was in back. And they actually did everything together. I called them the Bobsy Twins. They ate together, they walked together, and they sat in the hall with me whenever I did. And only when there was no one else in the hall this, this particular experience was reserved just for me. They would have these long, enduring laughing fits. <laughs> and as soon as one would just about get it together to stop laughing, the other would just burst out. And it would just go from one to the other, from one to the other. And they would last from... I'm not exaggerating, <laughs> 15 to 45 minutes at a time. <laughs> and after several weeks of this, <laughs> I slowly began to appreciate the range of ways 
that I would perceive the same sound. (laughs) It was truly incredible. It was the same situation over and over again, and it was very it was a very difficult teaching, but very freeing. Sometimes I would be sitting there and they would start laughing, and it would be the funniest thing to me. I would just start laughing and laughing, and it was very pleasant and it was wonderful. And I even liked that they were there. <laughs> And sometimes I would have so much aversion. I would just hate the sound of the laughter and I'd be so angry with them. And other times it wouldn't bother me at all. There would just be the sound and there'd be equanimity or or the sound would be very neutral. And I slowly began to learn that it wasn't the sound that was the problem, but my relationship to the sound. And I used to think that quiet was when there was no noise. But the real noise is inside us. And the quiet inside has nothing to do with how loud anything is outside. Quiet is not reacting to however one is perceiving a situation. And so I slowly learned that if mindfulness was present at the moment of the sound, it would just be hearing coming and going. And if the sound occurred without mindfulness, and if there was an unpleasant feeling, and I had no control over this, if there was the unpleasant feeling with the sound, and no mindfulness, aversion would arise to the sound. And if aversion to the sound arose without mindfulness, then there was aversion to the aversion. And this is very unpleasant, aversion to aversion. It's not wanting something to be happening. And then we have aversion to the object. Usually at this point, if there's no mindfulness, if there is aversion to the unpleasantness, there's aversion to the sound, then aversion to the aversion, and the whole process will start to get very solid. And I'm sure you've all experienced this in one form or another. And then it's not a sound and it's not hearing, but it becomes laughter, and then it becomes their laughter, and then it becomes their disturbing me, and then It becomes, what right do they have to disturb me? And then it becomes, I wish they weren't here. And eventually, it becomes, I hate them. And sometimes it becomes, I hate everything. And there's more and more suffering in the mind usually because there's an inability to recognize the unpleasantness all along the way. Anytime one recognizes it, there's a chance to be free of it, to just feel the unpleasantness of the sound or the aversion. And it's the same with desire in the mind. Often what happens on a retreat is what is called a Vipassana romance. And this is when a person thinks one's attracted to another person. And if you look closely, it's not the person that one's attracted to, it's the pleasantness one experiences when one sees the person. And if you miss the the pleasantness, 
often one can become married <laughs> within seconds if you're not careful. <laughs> and we, gr- we create this huge story because we miss the pleasantness. It's when we're not mindful of pleasant or unpleasant that we become tormented by clinging or resisting. And it can happen at many, many levels. This is a great opportunity to explore this rather than to judge it. If your intention is to judge it, you'll be miserable because you have no control over the pleasant and unpleasant. And the quieter one becomes, the more subtle the wanting, the desire, or the resisting is. Yet it's still very, very painful. And I gave a kind of, I gave what I called the flypaper sutra (laughs) recently in Switzerland. And the flypaper sutra is about our minds when they're sticky. And you've all probably seen flypaper, this yellow, well, I've seen this yellow strip that's very sticky and the flies get attracted to it and they stick. Well, our minds, when, they're not, when there's not mindfulness present, are just like that flypaper. And we accumulate and we accumulate And often when we first start a retreat, it's just like we're letting go of all the flies. So again, the mindfulness is a cleansing. When the mindfulness is present, it's not sticky. These reactions in the mind when the mind is sticky of clinging or resisting, if one is unmindful of them, are usually accompanied by judging or fear, anger, despair, self-pity, or doubt. And they create knots and tensions that not only accumulate in the mind, the stickiness is not only just in the mind, but the body actually accumulates knots and tensions. And so as the mind quiets and concentration increases, there is an increasing ability to open to these intense body sensations as they surface and let them go. As concentration deepens, when one goes to these areas of hot daggers, sharp knives, tons of pressure, or multifaceted razor blades, or however this is manifesting in your body, hot coils, steel plates, (laughs) rice krispies if you're lucky, One can hardly believe it, but these sensations become more intense. When the concentration increases, it's like putting a laser beam on it. It becomes more clear, and they intensify. And as insight deepens, and when the energy is high, it can be quite invigorating to see these sensations just as elements as earth, air, fire, and water, just coming and going. And there can be sometimes even no sense of my back, or no sense of my knee, my hot talons, or my hot coals. It's just the bare sensations themselves. Several years ago, when I came to do a three-month course with Upandita, 
I could only sit an hour a day and I could only do fast walking because my back was in incredible knots. And it was quite scary to come to the retreat because I had no idea if I could really do it. And those three months, most of them were for me like being in a torture chamber. There was so much incredible pain that surfaced. And as the retreat went on, I started really experiencing these intense sensations just as I'm describing, just as elements coming and going. And there were some times at a certain period where I would be sitting for over five hours in a row because if I moved, it would be more painful than if I didn't move. It was incredible. And then I started having memories surface of being sexually abused when I was very young. Six months old, three years old, five years old. And I'm sharing this because what was so powerful about that period was that the memory surfaced as just the bare sensations. It was extraordinary. And a lot of the emotions surfaced later. (laughs) Actually, for several years they've been surfacing. Um, But the perspective that I had of no I being there, of being able to perceive the whole situation with such detachment gave me the strength to face the emotions. And I can actually sit in this position which I couldn't do for five years after going through all this. When intense sensations arise, it's important to get as close to the sensations as you can. And one can keep attentive to the sensations and relax around them and settle back. Then you can go into the sensations again and relax around them and settle back. If the sensations continue to be intense, then it's time to give your mind a rest. If we stay with painful sensations for too long, it's just like putting a flower in the sun. It withers. Too much staying with pain will wither the mind. And so it's important to develop a relationship this, this includes emotions, this includes thoughts, anything that's very intense and painful, to go into it slowly, a little bit at a time, stay with it, and then give the mind a rest. Go into it, give the mind a rest. This becomes a more and more delicate process with physical and mental pain, and very humbling. At times, one can feel very defeated. And it's important to know what it is one's being defeated by. It's usually the desire to be rid of the unpleasant sensations, not the sensations themselves. If you're being with sensations to be rid of them, This is like gritting one's teeth through the pain and it becomes an endurance test and it's not mindfulness. And if the energy is low and the pain is overwhelming and unbearable, 
it's important not to push oneself too far or rush the process. If you notice that you're deliberately trying to open areas of the body, if you notice that you're deliberately trying to open a knot, open an area of tension, this is reinforcing the I. It becomes my pain, and it actually develops more knots and tensions. It's not mindfulness. And if you still try to go into the pain at this point, there can be an overwhelming sense of oppression and defeat, and the energy really goes down. And this place of near defeat is merely not being able to open anymore. This is when fear attacks become very predominant and planning mind becomes strong. And gentleness and patience are essential. Patience manifests as tolerance. Patience is the ability to endure the desirable and the undesirable. And when there's patience, more and more of life becomes tolerable, becomes workable. When we feel like we make mistakes, when we lose our balance, it's really the fertilizer. It's really the manure for the garden. And it's like we're learning to compost ourselves. And it's by losing balance that we learn about balance. Losing balance is the way we learn if we open to the risk. How many times have I gone back into the fire? How many times have I been fooled by terror, by burning sensations, throbbing? How many times do I have to be with the terror before I can also feel vulnerability? How many times do I need to control or avoid or whatever? We don't always have the spaciousness and alertness and energy to be with whatever's happening all of the time. So we even need to learn how to be patient with being impatient. To be patient with being uncompassionate for ourselves. Or to be patient with judging ourselves. Patience is what allows for us to open a bit at a time. To leave the fire a bit at a time. It really becomes learning to receive each moment. One yogi asked Upandita before he left that three-month course several years ago. She said, Does enlightenment happen in stages because One can't tolerate opening to that much suffering at once. And he just gave her the most wonderful smile. It takes time, patience. This is a story about a hospital. 
I have a friend, a chemotherapy nurse in a children's cancer ward, whose job it is to pry for any available vein in an often emaciated arm, to give infusions of chemicals that sometimes last as long as 12 hours and which are often quite discomforting to the child. He is probably the greatest pain giver the children meet in their stay in the hospital. Because he has worked so much with his own pain, his heart is very open. He works with his responsibilities in the hospital as a laying on of hands with love and acceptance. There is little in him that causes him to withdraw that reinforces the painfulness of the experience for the children. He is a warm, open space which which encourages them to trust whatever they feel. And it is he whom the children most often ask for at the time they are dying. Although he is the main pain giver, he is also the main love giver. So I encourage you to trust whatever is coming your way, moment by moment. Because not seeing dukkha is dukkha. And when we see our own mind and body process more and more clearly, and when we can trust what it is that we're feeling, there's more and more happiness. Let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.